Thanks, veterans. It is, uh, in my family, my grandfather uh, served in World War II and didn't talk about it until my mom was in her 50s. And uh, so there was a, a legacy and a faithfulness uh, in our family. So thank you for your service. We do appreciate that. And we worship today with the freedoms that you provide. So, um, Pastor Joel mentioned how much he gives to the Great Commission Fund. Thanks for being vulnerable about that. And I want to tell you how much I give to the Great Commission Fund, and that is I give a little bit more than I think I can afford to give. So uh, when you're thinking and praying about how to contribute to the mission that God is doing around the world, uh, and you look at your checkbook and you figure it out and you go, you know, I think I can afford $5 a month or something. Can I just challenge you to think a little bit bigger and maybe give the Lord an opportunity to meet you and supply what you need in ways maybe he hasn't you haven't seen him do in the past so truly take advantage of the opportunity to be involved in the global work of god and be prayerful about that well we are in a study of the churches in the book of revelation we are now at church six the church of philadelphia in revelation chapter three so if you have your bible either turn or tap on a device to Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to see what the Lord would want to say to us today. I believe He does want to say something. Let's pray. God, thank You for those here in our presence who have served in our armed forces to preserve the freedoms that we have to fight for justice around the world. And we are grateful for them. So may they know that they are loved. May they be encouraged on this day. Father, uh, each week we gather in this space to exclaim our adoration to you and to hear from you. And so would you speak to us today? Lord, I think there are some ways that you would like to touch lives today as we speak about some vulnerable things and we hear from you. So would you be faithful to us, bring encouragement, even in the midst of our day in which there's much discouragement. Help us to hear from you. In your name I pray, amen. I have uh, discovered that there is a conspiracy against me. It's actually kind of true. I discovered the conspiracy many, many years ago. I wouldn't have called it a conspiracy. I, that's a more of a recent adoption on my part, but there is a conspiracy to convince me that I am not who I am. Maybe the first time this occurred to me was many years ago. I was in the front yard of my house. My older cousins, two male older cousins were over. We were with my father. We were playing ball in the backyard. And my dad throws a ball at me very hard. And it hits me and injures me. And I can still, it's amazing how this happens in a life. Our memories, even at my age, the memory is still good enough, right, to remember episodes. 
from many years ago. And I can still picture the trees here, the ball hits me, I look over, there's my two older cousins, there's my dad who threw the ball, and my dad turns to my older cousins, and they all three begin to laugh while I'm hurt. And I run up the stairs and into our home, embarrassed and ashamed. And that little episode had a, a story attached to it. And we all have these little episodes in our lives that tell us something about who we are. And in that little episode, I discovered that, that my dad is not necessarily for me. And you can fast forward that story through the years. And any time there was a pain or a hurt in life, that pain and hurt reinforced this idea, my dad's not for me. My dad is against me. My, I don't belong. You know, however you frame it, it's, a, it's at its core, it's an identity question. At its core, it's an identity question. Where do I fit? And in the moment of pain, I did not, in my perception, I did not fit with my dad. Fast forward now, decades. My family's from Ohio. I travel with my family to Ohio. This is a couple summers ago. I call up my dad. And my dad and I don't see each other frequently. We don't talk a lot. He doesn't understand anything that I do. Truly. My dad doesn't have a clue what I do for a living or anything of that sort. He's never been to Minnesota to visit me. That, I'm not asking for any sympathies here. I'm just telling the story. So I call my dad. I'm in Ohio. And I said, Dad, hey, I'm, I'm in town. I've got the family. Would love to see you. And he said, no, I, I don't think so today. I said, you know, Dad, I, I will. Uh, he said, my house is a mess. He lives alone. And he's in his 70s. He's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't clean the house. I don't want you to come over and see me. I said, that's not a problem. I said, let me, let me take you out to eat. He said, oh, you can't afford that. I said, Dad, I, I can afford to take you out to eat. I said, well, I'll meet you at the restaurant. I, 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 I'll pick you up if you want, but otherwise I'll just meet you at the local restaurant. Famous restaurant in town. Easy to find, easy to get to. And Dad says, no, I don't. I don't think so. So we have a little conversation on the phone, hang up the phone. Next day I'm with my brother who's close, closer to my father. And my brother says to me, hey, talked to dad last night. He talked about the fact that you called. And he said, uh, dad just wants you to know you don't need to call him when you come in town. Dad, dad's just in a different place. And he... I don't think he really wants to see you guys right now. And there's a lot of issues there, you know, with my father and his insecurities and all that stuff, right? But there's a conspiracy telling me something. And there's a conspiracy telling you something. Here's the conspiracy. This is a conspiracy I learned through my journey with my father. Here's what the world is saying to you, friend. The way you are is not enough. The way you are right now is not enough. You need something more. I looked it up this week. 
the advertisement industry in the United States is a $1.2 trillion industry. It is a conspiracy to tell you that the way you are right now is not enough. That we've got to add something to you, right? We've got to sell you something that's going to make you more complete. It's going to somehow satisfy you to the degree that you can then prove your somebodiness. Because without their product, you are a nobody. You're incomplete. We all work to overcome this conspiracy in a variety of ways. That would be a whole nother message, a whole nother day-long seminar probably. But among the efforts that we make, it sounds something like this. To try to convince ourselves that we belong, that somehow we fit, we tell ourselves the following. I think there are only three options here. I am what I do. I am what I do. That is my titles, my positions, my bank account that proves my activity, the house that I live in, the car that I drive. I am what I do. Or I am what people say I am. And for most people, I've lived long enough and I walk alongside college students. So for I could tell you names and places of students who tell me the same story and over and over that there's an episode in their past that tried to convince them that they're not good enough. And it's usually a, a significant adult that speaks into their life and says something to convince them they're not good enough the way they are. And so we buy into the lie that I am what other people say I am. The third option is I am what God says I am. I am what God says I am. It seems to me that the Creator is the only one who has the right to define us. And yet, we live long into our years trying to secure some kind of identity. Identity is how do I identify myself, right? How do others identify me? Do I belong? Do I fit? Am I good enough? Am I secure? And the list goes on. You say, what in the world does that have to do with Revelation chapter 3? It has nothing to do with what I'm about to say in the sermon. I just thought it was good. <laughs> That's not true. Here's what it has to do in part as we set this up. Last week's church, the church at Sardis, had an unmistakable identity. Prestige and wealth and opulence. It's the big church. It's, it's the church that's on the cover of the denominational magazine. It's the church with the promising conference that everybody wants to attend. And on the cover of their church program, it says, Inoffensive Christianity. All are welcome here. She was well-liked by believers and non-believers. Everyone felt welcomed and no one was turned away. And she was crowded every week. Everyone wanted to be like the church. But Jesus had a different assessment of that ministry. 
And he issued a call to wake up to finish the work that was begun. The Church of Philadelphia has an unmistakable identity as well. The Church of Philadelphia is poor, small. No one envied the church in Philadelphia. No one was flocking to her conferences. She couldn't afford to print church programs every week. The small congregation wondered if all of their faithfulness to God was worth the sacrifice. They asked themselves questions of identity. Where do I fit with this city? Where do I fit within the world? And where do I fit with God? If God loves me, then why aren't things prospering for us? Do I really belong? See, I've been working the nursery, and I've been teaching children's church, and I've been setting up microphones, and is all of that worth it? Maybe we should just give people what they want, make the compromise, and be the big church. But consider this. The Church of Philadelphia is the only church of the seven where Jesus openly announces his love for the church. What I want to do today Okay, so here's what's going to happen today, and let me just talk you through this because it's going to be a little unfamiliar to you. So I'm using a microphone that I have to hold, and so when, when I say something dramatic that I really want to emphasize, in order to get my hand motions in, I'm going to have to set the microphone down to do that. Then I'll pick up the microphone, okay? So we're clear on how that will work? Okay, I'm going to just take this microphone off. Hey, I'm good with this microphone, so you don't need to... Uh, stretch and try to get other microphones going. Okay, so where was I? We're opening someone else's mail. That's what we're doing. We're opening up the mail that was to go to Philadelphia. Okay, let's show that f those images, if you will, for us. We'll set this up with the, uh, the map. We'll start with the map. Hey, you're impatient. You are so impatient. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, map. We'll go to the map. Okay. So I was reminded that last week I said counterclockwise. It's clockwise. I got it. The, uh, so look. if you look at the chart, you see Philadelphia off there to the east. And the mailbag is going around with the mail carrier, and he's stopped at Philadelphia. Next image. Here is Philadelphia with her um, grain and grape vines. And Philadelphia had some open area where they could 
uh, grow plants and do some of the things like that that then would supply wine to the region around them. So it was a kind of a rich and fertile soil. Next slide. These are pillars in what was known. Uh, this is a little bit after our letter that we're looking at. But in the second, third century, they built a church there called uh, the Church of St. John. And these are the pillars in the church. Man, those are huge, aren't they? I mean, those are gigantic pillars for this church. Now, the reason for that is significant because early in the first century, there was a massive earthquake that leveled the city. Okay? We're, okay, we're going to do this. Wait, if I do that, then it's going to take me time to do this and then do that and then put this back on. I'm good. I'll just use this. Okay? You, you take that. We'll be good to go. Okay. Dramatic gesture there. Uh, okay. I'll be good. Thank you, though. I appreciate that. Right on top of things. Okay. So here's what happened. When this earthquake leveled the city, for 20 years after the earthquake, they felt the aftershocks. And what happened is the people lived in such fear that they actually lived and slept outside the city in tents. They had a little community that lived around the main city in these tents, and then they would work inside the city for fear that while they're in the city, if there were any of these rumblings, the city walls and buildings might topple on them and they might die. Now, when the city was leveled in the early part of the first century, the city reached out to Rome, and Rome gave them money to rebuild the city. As a result of that, the city name was changed. The city was originally Philadelphia because the founder of the city was the king of Pergamum, another city that we talked about, and he dedicated the city to his brother, hence the city of brotherly love. This is the original city of Philadelphia. But because the, the city was indebted to Rome, Rome decided to change the name of the city. They changed the name of the city once. Then about 50, uh, 40 years later, they changed the name of the city again. Within 80 years, the church had, or this church, the city had three different names. So by the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, it is known once again as the city of Philadelphia. So it had gone back to its original name. All right, next city, or next uh, image, there you go. You see the pillars again. This is the other angle of the pillars to just see how mammoth they are in trying to bring some level of stability in this community. Okay, next, there's another image in the next one. What you are seeing there, if you can see, there's kind of a gr uh, gr green area there. That's an ancient wall in the city, and you can see it, there's not much left of it. That's because of all of these earthquakes that were in this community and destroying. And so that, so much so that Strabo, a historian in the first century, said this about Philadelphia. Philadelphia has no trustworthy walls, but daily, in one direction or another, they keep tottering and falling apart. No stable walls or trustworthy buildings in Philadelphia. One of the things that was common in Philadelphia, however, was temples. Philadelphia was known as the Little Athens because she had so many temples 
to so many different gods. And so anytime someone would think of an idea of like, well, have we satisfied that God in order to, to uh, get, a, you know, get away from the earthquakes? Well, no, we haven't satisfied that God. Well, then put a temple up to that God so that we have no more earthquakes. You follow? So what happened was by the end of the first century, at the time of the writing, the, church of Phil- or the city of Philadelphia had all these temples. And in the midst of all those temples, they had a synagogue. And the synagogue had a strong Jewish uh, influence over the whole city. And those Jews believed that they were the gateway to God. That the only way to really get access to God was through the Jews. So in order to, be, to come close to God, you had to first become a Jew. Then maybe you could become a Christian after that. And so what happened was for the Jews is they barred all of the Christians out of the synagogue. So the Christians wanted to go to the synagogue and talk and debate and, and carry on in, uh, conversations about ideas. And the Jews said, no, you cannot come in at all. So imagine now you're a Christian living in Philadelphia. Your city is toppling. There's no stability. The land is moving and shaking. There's all of these temples where you're trying to fit in and trying to make sense of the world. The Jewish population has barred you from the synagogue. You're outcast to them. And the city that you live in has gone from name to name to name. Over 80 years, three different names. You can see why the people in Philadelphia, there's nothing stable about their existence. They are asking the questions of identity that we raised at the beginning. Where do I fit in? How do I belong? And Jesus is going to answer that in this letter. Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, notice the relevant identification of Jesus. This is a not-so-subtle confrontation to the Jews in the city. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true. We'll pause there for a moment. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Over 30 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. It's one of the favorite titles of the prophets. The Holy One of Israel. Now Jesus shows up to the church that is banned from the synagogue, and Jesus says, I am that Holy One, and I am true. And when we say true, it means not only that he doesn't tell lies, that he's always speaking things that are accurate. It means that. But in this context, it actually meant more than that. It meant that Jesus is reliable. He is trustworthy. Can you imagine hearing that in this city where nothing is trustworthy, nothing is reliable, things are always changing, there's earthquakes constantly, and Jesus shows up and says, I want you to know I'm not like that. I am entirely true. I am entirely reliable. I am faithful. You can count on me, unlike the rest of life. And then he says, who holds the key of David. What does that mean? Well, you have to go back into the Old Testament to kind of understand this. It's most likely a reference to Eliakim 
who was a palace steward of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. So this is how this works. King has all of his treasury and everything's located in his palace, and he gives the key to one person and says, you have access to that. You can let people in and out as you want. And that was referred to as the king of David. And Jesus shows up to the church in Philadelphia, to those who are outcast and have no access to the synagogue. And Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the key. I'm the one who gives access to the treasury of God, not the Jews. The Jews believed that they were the guard to the access to God, and they were the ones to dispense the blessing. No, Christ dispenses the blessing. Christ is the one who gives access to the Father. He holds the key of David. And then he says, he explains that further with the next line, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Do you see the confrontation, the strong confrontation to the Jews who have barred the Christians from the synagogue and says, you don't have access. You don't have access to the Father. You can't get in. We've locked you out. Jesus says, you're not locked, you're not locked out. I'm the one who has the key. I'm the one who has access. I'm the one who opens the door and closes the door. So Jesus says to them, the gates of the kingdom are open and shut by me. So be encouraged. Now, he goes on in verse 8 through 10 and gives the commendation. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Isn't that encouraging to know God knows those moments when we have little strength? Yet you have kept my word and have not uh, denied my name. Verse 9, I will make those who are of synagogue of Satan. Remember, I said this a few weeks ago, that the Jews referred to themselves as the synagogue of God. Here Jesus refers to them as the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars. Who is Jesus? Back up in verse 7. Him who is holy and true. The, the Jews, though they, they, they're not Jews, they claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. You read through the Old Testament, the idea that you have of Israel, the Jewish nation, is this, that there's coming a day, Isaiah 45, for example, would say this, there's coming a day that through Israel there will be a blessing to all the nations, and the Gentiles, the outsiders, will come and bow down before the Jews. And Jesus shows up and says, you know what, actually, with that band of Jews that are keeping you from the synagogue, those band of Jews, there's coming a day when they're going to walk outside the synagogue to the Gentiles and they're going to bow down before you. There's a whole ironic reversal 
taking place here. And here's, the, here's one of the points. Unbelieving Gentiles and unbelieving Jews stand in the same place before the Father in heaven. Unbelieving Gentiles and unbelieving Jews are in the same status with the Father in heaven. That's a tough word to hear. But to the church in Philadelphia who are marginalized, trying to find where they fit, what a strong message God is sending to them in this letter. He's saying, you, you fit. And, and more than just you fit, here the Father is saying, listen, all of your faithfulness, all that stuff that you do, that you think no one is seeing, I see it. And more than that, you need to know that the rest of the world is going to acknowledge something. The rest of the world is going to acknowledge that I love you. Can you imagine saying that right here to Gateway Church? Jesus shows up and says, listen, I know it's hard outside those, these walls. I know there are places here that don't like who you are and what you stand for. I know that there are people who ostracize you and make it hard to live by my name. But I want you to know there's coming a day when all of those outsiders who are not inside this building are going to walk in here and they're going to acknowledge that I, the Father, the God, the Creator of the universe, loves you. So don't give up. Now verse, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently. You've already, you've, already, you've already done this. You've already kept my command. I will keep you. Now I'm going to give it back to you. So you've kept my command. Now when it gets hard, I want you to know I'm going to do the keeping. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. The only other parallel phrase that's similar to this in the entire Bible is found on the lips of Jesus in John chapter 17. And in that passage, John 17, Jesus says, you're going in this world, you will have trouble. But I'm going to keep you through that trouble that you're going to have in the world. I'm going to preserve you through that. I know it's hard, but you're going to get through it. Now verse 11. We could say a whole lot about verse 10, and some of you probably have lots of questions about verse 10, and if you come up to me afterward, we can talk about verse 10 and what it means for things like the, the rapture of the church. Some of, some of you love that stuff. You know, like, oh, look, there's the rapture. Okay, we'll talk about that at another time. That's not the main point of this passage, okay? Now watch. He spends a lot of ink on this final kind of promise to the overcomers. Now there is some, there's a gap. I want you to see the gap between 10 and 11. If you've been with us through this study, you know that after the commendation, comes the correction. Correct? There's a correction, some kind of confrontation. But there's not one here. It's one of only two churches out of the seven that has no correction. The other church being Smyrna. 
in chapter 2, where the church is being persecuted and actually they're dying for the faith. There's no correction for that church. And there's no correction for the church in Philadelphia. This small, struggling band of Christ followers, there's no correction. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Oh, man, what a, what a beautiful line to, to be able to say to the people, you're going to win the victor's crown. He's already telling them that. Hold on. Stay faithful. If you knew while you were training for a, a marathon race, and there's a lot to training for one, and you're running 18 miles, you know, every week uh, on the weekends and probably up to 35 to 40 miles a week total, preparing for a marathon, if someone came to you and said, hey, by the way, I saw the headline news the day after the marathon, congratulations, you win. After you picked yourself off the street, you'd probably say, I guess I need to keep training. Wouldn't you? Well, oh, well if, if I already know I'm going to win, I, I, I guess I need to keep going. That's exactly what Jesus does for them here. Listen, there's a crown in your future, so so don't give up. Keep training. Stay faithful. There's a crown in your future. I love what happens next. Verse 12. Him who overcomes, to the person in the church who overcomes, who stays the course, who holds on to what they have, to that person I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now you know why I showed you those pillars. Do you see how significant this line is as it relates to the people in this church? I'm going to make you one of those huge, stable pillars. It speaks to permanence. You're not going anywhere, folks. It's permanent. In a world that's unstable, uncertain, where there's aftershocks that bring down the walls, everything's toppling around you, you have to live in tents outside because you don't want the, fall, the walls to fall on you. In that world, I want you to know something. A day is coming when you will be a pillar. You won't be moved. Wow. To, be, to dedicate a pillar in the first century was a symbol of great honor. And here, Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar. By the way, every church has some pillars. Some people in the church who have endured through the years and through their perseverance and faithfulness, they have become pillars. And people in the church look to them both, uh, you know, directly and indirectly, formally and informally, to get a sense, a template of how to endure and how to be faithful when it's hard. Every church has some pillars. Then he says, just so it's clear, I'm never again will this person leave the temple of God. In other words, you are locked inside. How, how beautiful is a line like that 
to a group of people that feel locked outside and never getting in. And now notice the next line, I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Just pause for a moment. God says, I'm going to write my name on the person who overcomes. My son, who's 18 years old, when he was in high school, he was good friends. Two of his best friends were identical twins. I've known the identical twins since probably fourth or fifth grade. And I can never tell them apart. My son could tell me, hey, uh, you know, Braxton's coming over. And he would walk in the door. I'd have no idea if it was Braxton or Brevin. I haven't, you know what I'm saying? There's no way for me to tell them apart. Interesting, though, my son spends a lot of time with them. And he tells me that in their school, he said, on the other side of the hallway, he said, I can watch them walk across the hallway and I can tell you which one it is. Braxton and Brevin, these identical twins, their parents never have a problem telling them apart. Right? That's what parents do. Parents don't have a problem identifying their children. Years ago, my same son was playing football, 6th, 7th grade, in order for the coaches to know uh, which kid this is, on the back of his helmet, right, they wrote the, his last name, Kuhn, right? K-U-H-N, put it on tape, put it on the back of the helmet. I'm sitting up in the bleachers, freezing cold, day not unlike today, watching this football game, if you call it that, in fifth grade, take place. And my son is down there running around. I can't see the back of his helmet to know the name. I don't need the back of the helmet. And when my son scoots off on defense and that quarterback goes around to the left side with the football and my son comes out and makes an open field tackle, I jump out of the bleachers. I never saw the, the name on the back of the helmet. I didn't need to see the name on the back of the helmet because I know my son. That's mine. That one is mine. God of the universe doesn't need your name to know you. He knows you from afar. And he puts his name on your back. And you are stamped with that name. The name of the city stamped on the name on the overcomer, right? You belong. You're in the city. It's safe inside. You are a citizen. Think about everything that's going on in Philadelphia where the people don't even live in the city. And, and Jesus shows up and says, listen, if you overcome, I'm going to put my name of the city on you. You're always going to be in the city. You're never going to walk. You can't walk away from the city. You are the city. You see what I'm saying? So how, how amazing is that message? And then there's new intimacy. In addition to that, he says, I will write on him my new name. 
earlier in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, we, the followers of God, get a new name. Here, God says, through Christ, I, I'm going to put a new name on you. My new name is going to be on you. Wow. There are, there are things about God yet to be discovered. There's, and in, in this culture, to reveal something about yourself is to open up intimacy. It's true today, to, right? When you meet somebody, you start revealing. It is in the revealing that intimacy forms. Part of the reason that couples struggle as the years go on is they stop revealing and intimacy cools. Want to know how to recharge a relationship? Start revealing things about yourself again. Here's the Father, the creator of the universe, saying, listen, there are things about me you don't know yet, but if you stay the course, I'm going to reveal things about myself to you. And there's going to be new intimacy. You mean I'm not going to have to live in the tents on the outskirts of the town? No, you're going to come right into the town. I'm going to put my name on you the name of the city, and I'm going to be intimate with you, and you're going to belong, and I hold the keys of David, and no one can shut you out. You're inside because that's where you belong. Verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not... A word for Philadelphia only. This is a word for Gateway today. So, there's a conspiracy telling you and me, we don't belong. You don't fit. You're not good enough the way you are. You need some other stuff. You need other identification you need more of something. You need a different shape to your body. You need more hair on your head. You need more money in your bank account. Whatever it is, the world is telling you, you don't belong, but that's not what God says about you, Christian. That's not what he says. He says, I put my name on you. I put my name on you. In honor of the veterans... I'm reminded of the story of Iwo Jima in World War II. In 1945, we sent 110,000 military personnel to take Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima was a staging island for the Japanese Army. And there were three airstrips on the island. And they were using those airstrips to send airplanes to bomb. As a result of that, it was determined that the United States forces needed to take this island, which was not going to be an easy task. Over 500 ships and 110,000 soldiers, as I indicated, were sent. We lost 6,800 U.S. troops, died there. 19,200-plus wounded soldiers on February the 23rd, however, a group of soldiers made it to the highest point of the island, Mount Serebachi, where a flag was planted. The first flag was planted. It was not strong enough. It wasn't small enough, or it was too small 
for troops to look up and see the flag, so they decided to plant a second flag. And what you see now is a very famous image of that second flag being planted at the top of the mountain. As it was being planted, Rosenthal, the photographer, was there and took this famous picture. This picture was taken on February the 23rd, 1945. Two days later, this photograph was in the newspapers across the United States. In Texas, a lady by the name of Bell Block saw this photograph in the local newspaper. If you hit the next picture or the next slide, and she identified that person as her son. President Roosevelt invited what they believed were the men that were in this image to Washington, D.C., and eventually sent them out across the United States to raise funds. But as he uh, brought them to the United States, they realized that this person that has his back to us in the image was misidentified. And the person in this image, in that circle there, Harlan Block, died in battle. And the other person that was identified in that position also died in battle. And so it, the, it seems like the United States government at the time just said, you know what, we don't really know who that is. And since both of the soldiers that we believe it could be both died, we don't really need to pursue it. That's not good enough for a mom. And so Helen, or Bell Block, and her husband sent a note to open a congressional investigation where almost two years after the photograph confirmed that that was indeed her son. She never spoke to her son after that photograph. He died days later. You look at that photograph. You heard the numbers. What did I say? 6,800 U.S. troops died on that island. Out of 6,800 troops that died and 110,000 troops that were part of this campaign, a mom looked at that photograph and could tell that was her son. How does that happen? Only mom, right? And it doesn't matter, friend, where you go doesn't matter what posture you're in. And it really doesn't matter what your bank account says, how much hair you have on the top of your head. The God of the universe knows you intimately. Here's what Bell Block wrote. Just one simple little line. When people said, that's not your son, all she said was this. I know my boy, and that is my boy. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? We're going to pray. And I would just want you to hear these words. The Father might say over you, in contrast to the conspiracy All of the messages of the world, you're not good enough. You don't belong. You need more 
to be somebody. Would you just hear the words of the Father say to you, I know my child. You are my child. And the Father would say, I'm enough for you. And I get the, I get the privilege of identifying you. And it is my words that define you. And I am holy and true. And I get to put my name on you. And I always know where you are and what you're doing and what you need. And you are safe with me. You who overcome you will be a pillar in the temple of God. Permanent, strong, stable. You are safe with me. Father, what an amazing message to consider your great love for us. How you're willing to be identified with us that in our pain and suffering, even as I told my own personal story, even in our pain and suffering, you don't laugh and you don't run away. And even to a church that seems small and insignificant, living in a community that is unstable, insecure, you are God secure and you are enough for them. Thank you for that. God, as we walk in our world, there are lots of messages. Help us to filter those messages so that we hear the message of today's a letter to the Church of Philadelphia. The reminder that you want to be intimate with us and that we belong and you are the one who identifies us as your child. Help us to not forget that. Help us to walk in confidence humble confidence, but walk in confidence because of what you've done for us and how you love us. Thank you for this blessing. Now may your name be praised on our lips and through our lives. May people see Jesus in us this week. We go in his name. Amen and amen. May the Lord bless you. Have a great week.